Good morning. I'm your hostess, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 4th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Today's first guest will be Orange County's newish registrar voters, Bob Page, for our ritual coverage of election logistics as uh, vote-by-mail ballots will be shipping their way to Californians next week. He offers a shopping list of tabs on their website, ocvote.gov, to help to register to vote, to track your ballot, to apply for voting center poll work, to report improper activities pertaining elections, and to follow the results on at 8.05 p.m. on November 8th. We'll be right back, and then we'll hear from Irvine City Council candidate Scott Hansen, one of six candidates running for two seats. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Bob Page, Orange County Registrar of Voters, the helm of which has been turned over to him this last March. He currently chairs both the redistricting subcommittee with the California Association of Clerks and Election Officials and the Southern Area Board of Directors of this association. His San Bernardino appointments include Registrar of Voters, Principal Management Analyst, County Districts 2 and 5 Chief of Staff, Legislative Affairs Director, Business Development and Marketing Director at the Arrowhead Regional Medical Center. He served on the Indian Wells Valley Groundwater Authority, Chino Basin Watermaster, and worked as a reporter with the Inland Valley Daily Bulletin and the Times Community Newspapers back when the Los Angeles Times had the space in Costa Mesa. Bob Page completed his Bachelor of Arts in Religion at Dartmouth and his Master's of Arts in Print Journalism at USC. He comes to us today from his office in Santa Ana as we record this on October 3rd. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Bob Page. Thank you, Claudia, for having me. Well, first, it's five weeks away from the election and our new registrar voters that you did manage the primary in June. Now we are 1.8 million registered voters strong. And at this juncture, pamphlets, voter pamphlets are now in our homes and the vote by mail ballots are due mid-October. They're on their way. So could you, Bob Page, go over the important deadlines? And I don't know if you saw it, but the New York Times had this whole graph of every state's registration deadline. And when we look at the California state, as well as the others, a few others, the story isn't told on that bar graph. It's more complicated. So some deadlines, including registration, that brings us to when, because we have the same day registration too. Correct. Same on the election. Yes. Just real quick on some of the deadlines for the, the election. We actually started issuing ballots to military and overseas voters back on September 12th. Um, and had to make sure all those were issued by September 24th. Uh, as you mentioned, we did start mailing county voter information guides last Thursday um, and got the bulk of those all out, uh, the 1.8 million out by Saturday. We are scheduled to mail all ballots to active registered voters on Monday, October 10th. And the registration deadline the, you know, for regular registration, either online or with a paper affidavit, is Monday, October 24th. 
But as you mentioned, if you miss that deadline, there are opportunities to conditionally register to vote uh, in person at our office or at a vote center. Our vote centers do uh, start opening on October 29th, and then all 181 of our vote centers are open starting November 5th through 8 p.m. on November 8th. And it's just a little quick logistical question. Sure. Bob Page, why do I have to give the California Secretary of State my last digits of my social to confirm my registration? Is the state ID not unique enough? Well, uh, in the state, in the California Elections Code, regarding the registration online, it is required for a voter to give both their driver's license or state ID number and the last four digits of their social security. If somebody registers on a paper affidavit, they're only required to provide one or the other. Okay, but online, I mean, I, I try to teach young people and old people, do not give up your social security number, any of them, unless <laughs> you're dealing with something financial that the IRS has to know, and I decline all the time. So that's, it's just, you know, my little alert system goes off there, but that's, you say that's codified in state law, and that's the way we get that. So, all right. Yeah, it, and, and it is. And, and the other thing to remember is if you do register online, what the state ends up doing is rather than, you know, most people don't have a touch screen. So if you register online, then the, the state will provide us with a copy of your DMV signature um, to put with your registration record. Right. But I'm just confirming. And I, I've ended a lot of shows or start the shows with register and confirm your registration because it's in some places that uh, those two steps are essential. Not so yes. much in Orange County because we've got a tight ship that you're running here. So well, thank you. Yeah. So the voting options are by mail. Every Californian, we remind everybody, every Californian gets a vote by mail ballot. There's drop boxes and they're all in our voters pamphlet. They're posted there and there's centers. I guess the, there's a the drop box adjacent to UC Irvine. I'm not going to be too parochial about this, but just to show an example that there's it's a drive by. It's not an actual box for UC Irvine. And then the, the centers, including the Orange County Registrar Voters. I just want to know the signage and free parking and all that. Is that going to be a part of campuses? Yeah, we don't charge for parking for voters. So that the campuses will designate parking for voters. I mean, we want zero barriers to voting is the, the Correct. Intent. Correct. Okay. I mean, parking is definitely something that we consider when we're trying to find locations for vote centers. Absolutely. And, and the signage is a big deal, too. Yeah. And where we are right now with COVID, are personal protection equipment offered at the centers? Yes, we are still ensuring that we have um, face coverings available to our staff and any voter who wants to use them. We are still regularly cleaning um, surfaces in the vote centers uh, and providing hand sanitizer, those kind of things. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Bob Page, Orange County Registrar Voters with five weeks to go before the November 8th. That's I always call that the final day of the election since the election starts when ballots are issued. So it's correct. It's a not a fine point. So it's well understood that a partisan game book is intentionally overwhelming election offices on many fronts. There's frivolous requests and frivolous lawsuits mass challenges against thousands of voters, diverting resources from offices like yours. And when I attended a 
California National Women's Political Caucus meeting about three weeks ago, California Secretary of State Shirley Weber said she's had to budget three times the previous budgets, how much she has to deal with that undermining coming from all directions. So how is your budgeting first? Is that being maintained? What To what extent do you have to keep adding more to your budget to deal with those intrusions in your running your office? Well, the first thing I would say is that in addition to being making elections easy and secure, uh, our, all of our elections in Orange County are also transparent. So under state law, any voter in the state has a right to ask questions about the voting process and election process. And we're obligated to answer those as well as allow uh, voters to observe our processes. So we make sure that that we provide answers to their questions, help them understand the elections processes. We've got a very robust election uh, and voter education outreach program that we do, making presentations online as well as in person. Um, we put a lot of information out. There's a lot of good information in the County Voter Information Guide. We also um, put out some informational postcards. We've got all our social media accounts. We have an electronic newsletter that we put out weekly. You know, we do our best to be proactive about putting good information out in the public so that voters can feel secure in the way that the elections are conducted in Orange County. But if they have questions, they can contact us. They can come visit and watch what we do. Well, that's one side of the electorate, but there's another side of the electorate that just doesn't want to let you do your job. I mean, that's and Neil Kelly, your predecessor, talked about more and more bandwidth was being invaded. Uh, I don't know if that's the verb I want, but it was uh, being overtaken by disruptive elements. So are you requesting of the county additional funding to deal with that kind of intervening, interfering activity? At this point, no, I've not asked the county for any additional budget um, authority to handle things. We we are are doing a, a good job of managing Public Records Act requests that we get. Um, a lot of them end up being duplicative. You know, somebody might see something online that, hey, you need to ask your county for this information or that information. So when those kind of things go out online, you know, we'll typically get um, a good number of, of the same request over and over again. So we're just having to compile the data once and, and provide it to people. So it does um, require a certain amount of resources and time, but the law requires uh, that public records be provided. So it's part of our it's part of our job. And the jobs there, you sent out a flyer to us about, I want to say it was about a month ago, asking for people to sign on as poll workers. I'll talk about poll watchers in a minute, but mm -hmm. or a few. But the actually, I there's a little data point to you. A person that lives right across the street from me, I'm pretty familiar with. She wanted to contribute. She said she called the number, hadn't heard back. So is there are there some glitches with people getting through to apply? Because I know there's a big need to staff this election effort. I, I have not been informed of any any glitches. We we definitely invite people to to go to our website ocvote.gov slash jobs to uh, inquire about opportunities to work for us for this election. Um, we are um, making good progress on making sure that we're fully staffed in our vote centers, but we're always looking for people who would like to help out, help their neighbors to vote, 
Um, so I would encourage your neighbor to, to reach out again. I apologize if she didn't get a call back, but I've not heard of any glitches in our system. Okay. Well, I, I did when she mentioned that about two days ago, I said, just here's the card. That's the number she used. And so I'll, I'll remind her another time. Cause I, I know you can't, you can't have enough and, and training. I mean, how much training are they getting? Like is it some intensive two, three days of training. Yeah, there's there's online training and then there's in-person training. And both are, are are rather robust. A lot of information that we provide. You know, you make sure that the the folks that are going to be helping their neighbors have the basic information they need to assist their neighbors with voting, try to address some of the anomalies that come up or the 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 different situations that might arise so they can handle those. But ultimately, we've always got constant contact with the people working in our vote centers. Uh, either by phone or radio, where they can, and we've got people out in the field to help them. Uh, we've got teams that are there to help them with any technical issues, teams to help them with management issues. We make sure that they're supported. So even if even if there, an issue comes up in the field while they're actually helping voters that they can't remember from the training or maybe wasn't addressed, we've all they've always got a way to get that information quickly and, and to get the help they need. So are you, as I recall from previous visits, of that there's that sort of model voting center that's inside the registrar yes. voters office and it, when i attended that kind of a press event and there there was a mention of part of the training for voting workers is a way to decelerate any kind of a, a situation going on so that's still a part of the training oh yes it is the, or the de-escalate de yeah the de-escalation skills is something that's that's very important as part of the training for this election, we actually looked at, at some more samples of different, what different counties and different agencies made available regarding de-escalation training and, and try to, to expand that uh, element of the training a little bit. So that's still a key part of ensuring that, that our, you know, the folks that come and work for us in the vote centers understand, you know, how it is to be a good listener and, and to not take, you know, if somebody's coming up upset that, that they're not upset at them specifically, you know, to work with a person and help them get the, the services that they need without having, you know, without having it get escalating into a, a more serious situation. And it, I mean, it's such a huge responsibility. I have to give it to every one of them because it's not like you're you're getting expense accounts. They're really it's a it's a tall order to be doing all those duties in uh, with mounting challenges. So um, hats off. And I'm glad that's a part of their training. When I've previously talked with Neil Kelly, I'm not trying to drag the whole previous administration into yeah. all of this, but but it was really kind of commendable that Neil was always interested in leveraging the capacity, the talent of poll watchers. He encouraged them, which it surprised me because I remember back in the days where poll watchers were sort of like a, a blight washing up at the the polling places, but what is your disposition with poll watchers? Are you, do you have like a particular public uh, sort of endorsement of bringing them into this whole extra eyeballs on the polling place kind of situation? Yeah, as, as I said, um, we make sure that all of our elections are transparent. That includes people who want to watch operations at the vote centers themselves, not just in our office. Uh, we work with several groups, different political parties, different uh, advocacy groups that are out there. If they ask to train to attend our our um, customer service representative training, we allow them to to audit that and watch it and see and provide any materials that they want to know about how we train the people who work in our vote centers, uh, the different different uh, policies and procedures that we have in place. That's all part of the stuff that we share with them. Um, and 
you know, it, you're right. In terms of leveraging them, if they see something that that they think isn't being done properly, we do encourage them to contact us so that we can then talk to those people running that vote center and find out what they're doing and, and if we need to correct their activities in any way. We, we want to do that as quickly as possible so that voters get the, the proper service. And are all voting materials, I think it was unique before in Orange County, are all voting materials processed, printed, everything in Orange County? Orange County prints the ballots. We haven't changed any of the processes that were in place for, for production of election materials that were in place before um, I came to the county. We print uh, and mail all the ballots to our registered voters. We do have a vendor who prints most of the county voter information guides. We do print some of them in-house, all the ones that are in um, additional languages other than English we're printing in-house. Um, the postcards that we send out, we're all doing that in-house. So we do a lot of the printing in-house. Not every single piece of paper is printed in-house, but most of it is. So all of these measures, whether you're training people, you're allowing partisans to come in and audit the training, your custody of all the voting material is pretty tightly overseen. Are there other kinds of proactive measures that you can tell us about? I mean, I'm sure some are probably considered more confidential, but there are there proactive measures that are sort of defanging the kind of undermining that is, I mean, we just read and hear about it every single day. Yeah, as, as, as I mentioned, the the theories that are out there about, about elections and the concerns about elections, you're right, it's really about being proactive. And, and as I said, we have a very robust voter education program, we've actually, invested some more resources into that program for this election um, to make sure that that every eligible citizen in the county knows uh, how to register to vote they know how to exercise their right to vote and we're all we've also invested a little more money in how we recruit our uh, customer service reps at the the vote center so that when a voter shows up at the vote center they're getting adequate service so we identified some areas where we could we could uh, make some improvements our voter education program and making sure we were actually paying for a little bit more advertising rather than relying wholly on social media and people coming to our website. And we did the same for our recruitment for our customer service reps. We actually bought some ads to try to ensure that we were uh, getting that word out. So Nathan Solis with the Los Angeles Times published in today's Los Angeles Times that Shasta County there is an effort afoot. There is what is called a voters task force that is interacting directly with voters that is starting to messy the water in the process. So uh, it's a heads up. I don't know that Shasta County was proactive about how to, to deal with that kind of uh, interference in election. It is an interference. So those are the kinds of examples. And I, I want to just put that out there so people know that you're watching it, you're aware of that, and the ne the latest and the greatest device is, um, you know, something that you hopefully can. I mean, it's an exercise of an imagination. What what could come next to to interfere with the process? And yeah. I mean, so I, yeah. So what what I would say to voters in Orange County is that that their their registration information is confidential. There are certain uses of voter information that I am I am required to provide to campaigns or or candidates, um, journalistic purposes or scholarly purposes, if they ask for voter information, uh, the law does require that I provide some of that information to those uses. But uh, if any group that has said that they had a proper use of, of voter registration information is actually going out and intimidating voters in any way, 
I would appreciate learning from the voters about that activity so that we can address it because we we want to make sure that every voter in Orange County feels safe uh, to vote and doesn't feel intimidated anyway. What's the appropriate means of reaching you with some transgression like that? So we have a, a voter assistance hotline in our office, uh, which is our main number, 714-567-7600. That's 714-567-7600. We also have a toll-free number of 888-OC-VOTES. That's with an S at the end. That's 888-OC-VOTES. But voters can also contact us by email at voter at ocvote.gov. That's voter at ocvote.gov. We also have a live chat function on our website, which would be ocvote.gov slash chat. That's forward slash chat. Um, you can always come down to our office in Santa Ana, which is at the corner of uh, McFadden and Grand Avenue at 1300 South Grand. And also, as I mentioned before, we have 181 vote centers uh, we will be opening and, and serving voters with this election. They can always go into a vote center and ask for help as well. So some, maybe one in each center is, is I don't know if deputized is the word, but they're deputized to take a an irregularity that has some legal consequences to it, that there is that person. I mean, is deputized the right word or is there somebody designated to say, okay, this is, we're kicking into a legal problem now? Well, we, as I said, we encourage people if they have, if they suspect that something is not being handled the way it should be, or somebody's doing something fraudulently, we want them to report that. If somebody has evidence of, of fraud, we are going to, if we receive that, we're going to provide that to the district attorney's office to look into. We're, we administer elections, but we don't, we're not a law enforcement agency or a regulatory agency. So when we get those kind of complaints, we're going to make sure that those authorities who can investigate and potentially prosecute uh, voter fraud have that information. So for your elect first election in Orange County, from previously running in San Bernardino County, I think it's like San Bernardino is 15th or 17th largest county to the fifth largest county in the country. Is it what San Bernardino's 15th or 17th population ranking in the country? I don't know it's ranked, but San Bernardino County has just over 1.1 registered voters, a million voters, 1.1 million registered voters, and Orange County has what, more than 1.8. Correct. Right, right, right. So we're, what were the lessons learned from your running the June primary? Well, as, as I said before, um, one of the things that we have decided based on uh, how the June election went, um, both our recruiting of employees as well as our voter education outreach and our, the turnout numbers is we we decided to, to invest some more resources in how we recruit our employees to work in the election as well as how we go about providing information to the citizens of Orange County about their right to vote, their ability to register to vote, their right to vote, and how to exercise that. So that is something that we've we've spent some more resources on to try to improve those programs, uh, with, uh, try to get a little bit more uh, wider reach with those that information that we put out. Um, the other thing that we've done is we've looked at our the way that we manage observers in the office and, and have been kind of tinkering with that to, to make sure that we're making sure that they have people there that who can answer their questions promptly and, and, and help them when they're here watching what we do. So one kind of measure that can handle a lot of these situations, and I can remember it was exactly four years ago, still it was a midterm election. And we and we I want you to talk about pop-ups. It was incredible that in the 2018 midterm election, there was a pop-up 
at the Segerstrom Performing Arts Center outside of the Hamilton performance. And there is going to be a Hamilton performance run at the Segerstrom again this month. In fact, somebody's treating me to it at some tickets, but I don't know if you're going to repeat that amazing opportunity. It has such an elegance to it, Bob Page. Well, we um, we do, as I said, we've got 181 vote centers. We've got 121 ballot drop boxes. But the pop-ups, that's yeah. what I'm curious about. No, no, I, I get it. I'm just trying to, to lay the, the context, which is we do have those vote centers are open four to 11 days. We have the drop boxes and we do plan each election to have five pop-up voting events between the, the during the time when the when the vote centers are open. So as I mentioned to you earlier, we are still finalizing the plans of where those pop-up events will be. The goal is to have those events at places where people are, or like you mentioned, a, an event like that with a, a play or a musical, but someplace where people are, are normally congregating already rather than, than setting up someplace and trying to drive people to the location. So that's been the goal for this election is to find those kind of locations in the community, um, one in each supervisory district where people already during that time period are, are gathered so that we can try to reach some of those people. So we're right now just finalizing some of the, the contractual agreements for using property for those events. And those will be posted soon on our website at ocvote.gov forward slash pop hyphen up. So I have to ask, which iteration of the Board of Supervisor Districts, the one that is of the current office holders or the ones that are that the elections are about? Um, when we're planning for locations uh, throughout the county for the pop-ups, we're looking at based on how we conduct elections. So because our Board of Supervisor District has radically changed in where my station is located. So I didn't know if it's a district three or district two that you're talking about that pop up and be around. So that's that's what I was getting to, because they are it's a very different map. Yes, they are. They, they did make some change. The Board of Supervisors did make some changes to their district boundaries. So but the goal is, is to have pop up events spread throughout the county. So we just we're just using the supervisorial districts the newly adopted ones as the newly adopted as, ones. As, okay. as the as the guide as to where we'll we'll make sure that we've got one in each in each supervisory district. Okay. Well this is very helpful. And so I I don't know if there's anything you want to say in addition to assuring voters that their ballot is going to be counted based on when they're dropped off. And I'll ask another question about when you recommend observers of elections to see when a race is ready to be called, if that's possible. But first, how can you assure voters that their ballot is counted? You talked about conditional ballot or provisional ballot. So that assurance, how do you get that out there? Well, um, we encourage voters to sign up for ballot tracking through our OC Ballot Express service, um, and they can do that at ocvote.gov forward slash track. That's ocvote.gov forward slash track. Uh, and if they sign up for that service, they will get either an email or a text message from us during different parts of the, of the processing of their ballot from the time we get ready to mail them to all the way through when we actually count their ballot. They can also go to that same website. In addition to signing up for Ballot Express, they can actually go to that same webpage and research where their ballot is in the process. So we, we encourage voters to, to use that service and, and track their ballot. And how do you recommend 
that observers and that's the you know the sophisticated observer to the the casual the neophytes how an observer knows when a race is ready to be called because we see that it says a hundred percent of the precincts counted but we know that they're not all counted so how do we how do we interpret all that it's pretty tricky sometimes yeah so the Registrar Voters Office doesn't actually call races. What, what we do is we process ballots, we count votes, we audit our work, and then we certify the results. And so the, the idea of, of calling a race as being there are not enough votes left to change the outcome is not something that we would do in our office. I know that media outlets will do that from time to time um, and make predictions about how the race is going to end up. Um, but, um, you know, we we administer things very closely and, and carefully. And the other thing I will say is that, you know, when we're posting results um, at the end of election night, and then every time we post an updated results report, we are always estimating the number of ballots that are left to process. We're not able to then say, well, X number of ballots are from this, have this contest on it or that. That's too much additional work that oh. will blow up our process to be able to, you know, I'm not saying we couldn't determine that. I'm just saying it administratively, um, it doesn't make sense to slow the process up to make those kind of those estimations. We we focus on just how many total ballots in the county are left to process. And so each each time we post an update, the voters should be able to see that the number of ballots left to process should go down each day. Well, thank you for taking this time at as this becomes an increasingly uphill climb toward the midterm elections. Thank you for your time today, Bob Page. Well, thank you, Claudia, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to let the voters know about the election. My guest was Bob Page, Orange County Registrar Voters, with five weeks to go before the final day of the midterm elections, November 8th. We'll be right back with Irvine City Council candidate Scott Hanson. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Scott Hanson, one of six candidates running for two seats on the Irvine City Council, one open and the other challenging incumbent, Anthony Quo, whom I've invited to this show, but I have not heard back from him. So listeners, help me get Anthony Quo on this show. Scott Hansen was previously an intellectual property attorney at Western Digital. He serves as the president of the Sierra Bonita Homeowners Association in nearby Turtle Rock, nearby where we are in the studio, and as commissioner of the City of Irvine Transportation Committee since his appointment February by the mayor, Farrah Khan. He previously chaired the Finance Committee at the Irvine Unified School District. Scott Hansen previously also was principal and technology attorney at Viking Tech Law, general counsel for Flavor Friends, intellectual property tech law partner at Fullwider, Patent Limited Liability Partnership there, partner for an IT attorney, attorney at Oppenheimer, Wolf & Donnelly, and was a research engineer with Vanderplatz R&D. Scott Hansen completed his Master's of Science in Mechanical Engineering at UC Santa Barbara, his JD at Indiana University Mar School of Law, and his Master's of Science certification program, I'm not sure if it's or it's a master's degree, in innovation entrepreneurship at a finance business school 
H-E-C in Paris. He joins me in studio. Everybody knows I like that, to have people in studio with me. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Scott Hansen. I am thrilled to be here, Claudia. Thank you so much on this beautiful campus of UC Irvine. What a gift it is to the city of Irvine to have it here. It is. And actually, speaking of gifts, I'm, this I, it's off my script, and I but it's been a good question to ask. The gift of the... The brain trust potential with every school we have, the engineering, the cognitive sciences, the medical school, the there, there's so many schools here. And so I'd like to ask candidates, anybody on the faculty who's in your brain trust for your candidacy? Oh, I am fortunate to have relationships of varying degrees with different faculty members. I think probably the main one would be with former law school professor Dave Min. He's a state senator now, and he still lives in the University um, Hills Housing. His wife is a faculty member at the law school. I have so admired him, and I follow him and get to chat with him every once in a while, which is a real privilege. Well, he also got his endorsement, so it's an inside job to mention. Okay, so first, though, uh, second first is how you decided to transition from your legal work. And you said uh, in one of the panels that you you also have a patent that you worked with. your mm-hmm. So you've got intellectual property, not just as a as counsel, but as an actual innovator and entrepreneur. So, but how did you decide, how did you make this transition into these civic commissions and then eventually decide and tell us why you want to be on the city council? Well, thanks so much. Uh, in college, I double majored in engineering and political science. Uh, One summer, I interned for a United States Senator, uh, S.I. Hayakawa, who had been president of San Francisco State. And so as I entered my engineering career, I'd always thought, you know, at some point, I'd like to give back to the community in government. So uh, as I was an engineer, we developed technology that um, if, if you go out onto any road in Irvine, and watch a GM or a Ford car drive by. Odds are good that that car is lighter and stronger and more fuel efficient because of work we did when I was an engineer. And then I went on to be, to work in the intersection of technology and business and law. That's what I did as an attorney. And as you mentioned, I, my daughter and I are about to get a U.S. patent on some electronics for medical devices. So it's been a... Wow, you're all over the, the tech map there. So, okay. But so but the transition though to to serve in the municipal capacities. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Well, um growing up, growing up my dad was in the navy, so we lived in many different cities and states. He worked uh in many of his jobs in the navy. He was in the civil engineer corps. So he was working with he was working with um, local governments in San Diego. He was part of SANDAG. It's an association of local governments. Uh, and so I grew up kind of watching the interface between the engineering world and the uh, local government world. So here in Irvine, uh, Paul Bacota, who's on the school board, appointed me to the finance committee of the Irvine Unified School District. I became chair of that, got familiar with um, local school finance as well as state finance, and eventually, Mayor Kahn appointed me to the Transportation Commission. Okay, so the, the Paul Bacota on the school board. So there, 
that you you were likely had some skin in the game with your two children enrolled in Irvine Public Schools. But I mean, is, there's so there's family members that have stakes here, but are mm-hmm. but you're saying you're watching communities that from an early age of all, all the sort of naval housing and that kind of thing. Well, sure, and he actually worked with local government in organizations here here in Irvine. Uh, I'm president of the Homeowners Association. Uh, we've been involved with the community for 22 years since we moved here. My wife's a, a public school teacher at University High School. So we've been active with the community for a long, long time. Okay, well, so speaking of community then, I, I'm going to, this is a pretty hardball question about, I mean, I've been watching trends for over 30 years. So I want you to map them out. What, what your impression of that and where you fit in to these trends underfoot here is that there's the democratic values, democratic with a little d, there's the leadership, there's transparency and accountability with the council. But, mm-hmm. And I think when we had a whole change in campaign finance, that 2012, that was, I think, that was a huge inflection mark for democratic values where we couldn't see we, we thought we were voting for a responsive council, but there was some sort of a backroom dynamic. There was this something sucking away that democratic feel. We had plans for a great park that, were, that was invested in. We had lots of development orders around, but there's all of a sudden there's this kind of like tilt away from what we expected, how we expected the city council to perform. So how... Are you given, I mean, right up to the point where we had the rule of two that was undermining democratic values, too. So I want to know, you're coming, you start out fresh, you're on the council. Mm -hmm. How do you keep the pernicious trends of the dark money, of the influences of people with deep pockets for you to be a responsive and a democratically elected city council member? I think that's a great question. I think that what we've gotten away from in Irvine is the original village concept of the city. The idea that you live in a village and it's got a school and it's got shopping and it's got conveniences nearby. It has parks. And so you live within this village, but you're also living within the city. Our city council now is elected citywide. And here's what that means. You have to have lots and lots of money to fully run a campaign. One mailer, just one mailer, cost about 60 cents when you include postage, and there are tens of thousands of households to mail it to. So if you send just three mailers, just for postage, you're already at $100,000. So one way to reduce reduce the influence of money is to to go back to district or to go to district elections so that we're running within our village or our surrounding district as the school board has done the campaigns get less expensive you get more people willing to run and this huge need of money that we need now to run a campaign will be greatly reduced okay so you're answering a question i did want to raise one of the last ones was that you support special districts do you support adding to the five seats that are on the 
Irvine City Council now. I do. You know, when we moved here in the year 2000, the population was about 140,000 in Irvine. Now it's 310 and continuing to grow quickly. So the, what, the, what that means is the workload on each council member has gone way up. They're expected to go to community events. They have to. They have to interface with many different groups. Their schedules are jam-packed, even though, even though the job description of a city council member is that they're part-time. I watch some of the council members. They're probably working, wild guess, maybe 60 hours a week, many weeks. I think they're overloaded. And so, yes, I, I think more council members to spread the workload out to would be a good thing. Okay, thank you for that. So leadership is another large part of an elected municipal officer. And so I, I look at the blast that I get from members of the council now, and I look at it, and there's a boba crawl. There's a ribbon cutting. There's, for me, the, I'm looking for leadership that's building things, that's building, that's, that's setting goals, and then showing us how the goals are being set and we have so many. We, and so I don't know if you want to use the Orange County Power Authority, that decisions made in there is how that there was a climate action plan. There's another sort of like, what happened? It mm-hmm. became the lowest performing OCP, the Climate Action Community Choice Energy entity in the state. So, so I'm not interested in boba crawls. I'm not mm-hmm. interested in I showed up with this and this sort of civic organ. I'm interested in... Goals being set, goals being kept. Mm-hmm. So let's use the OCPA as an example, a talking point for how you would restore that original goal of lowering greenhouse gas emissions with how it's performing and how transparency could be regained. How are you mm-hmm. going to fix the problem we're in? Well, thank you. I, first, with that question, I think there's an assumption that I disagree with. And that assumption is that the city's not planning and that the city's not executing. I disagree with that. We just had a giant pandemic that shut down the city for months. And our city government led us through it. Of course, some plans got off, off track. Um, but remember, we came through a crisis as a city. We've come through it. Things are looking good. Now, with respect to plans that are coming to fruition, look at the Great Park. We've got um, Wild Rivers. Uh, my kids grew up going to Wild Rivers in its old location. It's open now. That's just one feature. Uh, we've got huge number of new festivals. Uh, Harvest Festival. We just had a Hispanic Heritage Festival drawing thousands and thousands of people to the park. So we're starting to see the very beginnings, I think, of the park plan coming together. With respect to OCPA, I agree. OCPA has management problems, and I would like to see the management changed. I'd like to see more transparency in OCPA. But let's remember that what OCPA represents is community choice energy. It's our best way to get sustainable energy to massive numbers of households in Orange County, and it can do it fairly quickly. So while, while I do believe that new management at OCPA is critical, especially to restore public confidence, I don't want to see 
community choice energy collapse because if it collapses, it could be years before the governments are ready to join again. And all that time, the great potential of getting sustainable energy to thousands of households could be lost. So I don't want Irvine to pull out of it. I want it to fix it. So you are saying, Scott Hansen, that new management is critical. As recently as last evening, I was attending a meet and greet And I ask someone who's been following this very closely, so what are the votes for on the board to appoint new management, competent management? Mm -hmm. And I thought I, I thought I had the answer asking this person, and this person says, I don't know what the votes are. Nobody knows who the votes mm -hmm. are. So that's a, that's a pretty rudderless board if nobody knows. And I also, I had back and forths. I wanted to produce public service announcements for staff on OCPA. I worked with board member Sonny to offer my services here, but there was a hitch with that. There, they are, the staff is un, under the direction of this management. They're performing not in a very helpful way. It's not effective. So I, I'm not able to use my platform to bring people mm -hmm. on because you and I both know we meet people every day who have heard nothing about the OCPA. So if, mm -hmm. if new management is critical, how would you on the city council move on that changing mm -hmm. the CEO's position? Mm -hmm. Well, the Irvine has two votes on the board, right? So we have a little bit more influence than the other cities. So that... how would you deal with that on the council? Right. Well, I, I would push. I would push hard to change management. They've reached. They've reached some impasses. Um, I wrote. I wrote weeks ago to to the city council and to the OCPA, asking in very strong language that they terminate the CEO immediately. Maybe give a generous compensation package so there wasn't a lawsuit. But I, in my capacity as a community member, have been pushing it for a long time. Now, obviously, what the city council can do. Um, I know Mayor Khan has been working. She's a board member. She's a board member and Mike Carroll are board members. So I would encourage both of them to push as hard as they can to change the management of OCPA. I believe Mayor Khan's on board with that. Uh, I don't know about Mike Carroll. Well, see, it's a, 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 a hope and a prayer and a wish, and I think so. That, to me, doesn't spell out what does not map out the direction we're heading. And we all agree greenhouse gas emissions have to be reduced. The city has set an ambitious goal in 2030 to, to meet that net neutrality. So we'll... Um, so that's a concern. My guest, for those listeners who've just joined us, is Scott Hansen. He's a candidate for Irvine City Council, one of six candidates running for two seats on the council. We have lots of substantive things to talk about. You mentioned the Great Park, so I want to refer back to the most recent city council meeting where mm -hmm. I, as a trained urban planner, I was appalled that All of the work that had been done over 10, 15 years ago was, was not even raised, except for maybe in some of the, pu the public comments. But it was, there was nothing that resembled what had been liberally spread, or, you know, promoted around and revealed around the city. And it was a framework that was being considered, mm -hmm. not a comprehensive plan. So what was a city aspiration and mm -hmm. it takes a while to build an institution like a regional park it mm -hmm. takes time but 
it it's now the construct of five point it's their framework so there was you know what backwards that um i can't use that word on uh, radio my my station manager will bounce me and i don't want to leave my show but it was backwards is you don't approve a plan a project it was project level it wasn't a, a general comprehensive plan you approve that without first assessing the impact of the permitted activities so anybody with any kind of urban planning background would be really offended on how business was conducted in the last council meeting. What do you do? You're sitting on the council. How do you slow that locomotive down so that we look at basic urban planning principles that do well for the constituents? Sure. Let's take a moment to, to look at how we got here. The, originally, the park was there was a big plan for the park years and years ago. Shortly after, shortly after it was turned over to the city, and that's leadership. Is we'll not have an airport. Airport. We're going to have a great park. That's leadership. That was a goal, and there was it was going to be achieved. That was great, and a big coalition of people achieved that monumental moment in the history of Irvine. And there was a plan for the park, and they spent a few hundred million dollars planning it. Uh, I've looked at it. It looks really nice on paper, but then 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 some disasters happened. The um, the housing market crashed, so some of the funding for it disappeared. And then the second disaster was when the s- state seized the redevelopment fund money. So all of the money was gone, and part of, the proje- part of the promise to make the whole park project work was the city of Irvine promising to build a park that would rival the central park of New York City. And then suddenly all the money was gone, and they had to figure out how do we rescue the park? So the city and Five Point got together and tried to cook up a plan. It wasn't the world's greatest plan, but at least it saved the park. So, so there was Great Park version 2.0, which was much, much scaled down, and it sat kind of idle for a long time. Finally, the city is moving forward, and we're starting to see things actually happen with the Botanical Garden, um, with the new permanent amphitheater. Now, as a traffic commissioner... I understand that projects that are within the Great Park don't have to come to the Transportation Commission. But a project like a permanent amphitheater impacts traffic on the city streets, even for people who aren't going to the amphitheater. So I do think the um, the council should run some of these major projects through the commissions, through the finance commissions to look at the financing, through the transportation commission to look at the traffic. And it doesn't have to take much time. They could call a special meeting of any of the commissions and we could have a meeting within a couple of weeks. Uh, so I, I do think that on these major projects, the city should should rethink it and, and run them through the commissions because at a very minimum, it will it will increase public confidence in these large projects. So the rule of two, it's, this is all leadership, accountability, and transparency. The rule of two puts so many agendas, and we're not going to get to talk about them, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that it would allow for, for the public to speak to where the leadership is coming up short, what are the concerns, what needs to be uh, what kind of monitoring, studying, planning, and all that. But that that was shut down. And then, oh, no, we've got an election coming up. We're going to dispense with the rule of two. How intellectually dishonest can that be? What would you do as a council member if you feel like there's a coalition saying, oh, just you know, we'll just do this for a little while. This will be our practice. How do you exert your leadership in those dynamics? Sure. Well, first off, this 
I mean, somebody gave it this this brand name rule of two. The fact is, there are many cities in Orange County that have a similar rule. And one, well, vir- we're just a Mount Irvine. We're not interested in other cities. What do you do? But you on- have to be. You have to be interested in other cities because people are saying that this is somehow an anti-democratic rule. When in fact, many very democratic cities have a similar rule. But it's gone now. It's not there. So. Um, as far as reinstituting, I think it's fine. I've spoken to at least one former mayor who I respect who said that, that they very much didn't like this rule of two, if I'm going to use that brand Suki name. Suki Kang that's endorsing you? Is that who? Uh, well, I'm just going to say as a former mayor who didn't like that rule and and listening to the reasoning, I agree. So I think the the new rule where any council member can put something on the agenda, uh, I'm fine with. So... We've talked about district elections. Housing affordability is a big, tushed question to bring up at the end. Um, we, I've, in your debates with other candidates, you were talking about the affordability for civic servants. We all know that you gotta, it's you gotta have a legacy housing to be able to live here and be able to stay here. So, in previous administrations. When a development order was under consideration, there would be a component of affordable housing, and and the majority of council members would vote to make it a voluntary element. Mm-hmm. How do you negotiate with your council members to say it's not voluntary, it's a commitment, it's a set-aside for affordable mm-hmm. units for every single development order? How do you interact with your colleagues to get that done? Well, the good news there is the state is imposing a requirement on Irvine to plan on, under the RENA program, certain number of units. The SB10 and the others. And it and built into that requirement is a requirement for different levels of affordable housing. Now, if the word affordable is kind of a loose term because a family of four making $108,000 can still be considered um, eligible for affordable housing. That's sort of a sign of, of how expensive housing is in Irvine. Yeah, where that median is way off there. So um, so rate. number one, the, the state kind of helps us out there by requiring this, this mix of housing. What really interests me, my kids are in college. They've done the math. We asked them to take personal finance class. Yeah, they, yeah. They don't see how they can come back to Irvine. But we've so. all done that. We've all taken that. And I've heard that in, in your, um, your stump talks and all that. So I'm, I want it. We're, um, I didn't get a chance to bring up the broadband contract, but that the transparency is wanting there. I, uh, the electrification ordinance is going to be coming up. So mm-hmm. I unfortunately can't ask you all of those other hard questions. I got enough hard questions in, though, so I'm, I'm happy with that. So, Scott Hansen, I want to thank you for your time today on Ask a Leader. And I, I do thank candidates who are running. That's so important. It's such a civic uh, It's a civic treat for all of us. Thank you, Claudia. Honored, honored to be here. Okay, thank you. My guest was Scott Hansen. He's one of six candidates running for two seats on the Irvine City Council. That's my wrap. Next week, my guests are, are Irvine mayoral candidate Simon Moon and Congresswoman Katie Porter. Talk with you next week, and thank you everyone for listening. Check your registration and confirm it. <laughs>